You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. God, I pray that you would just bless this message, God, that um, it would be something that people would um, learn from, God. God, I pray that as we, as we go verse by verse, God, that you would just, that you would just begin to speak to us, God, that you would show us um, what, sin lo- what sin looked like in the garden, God, and, and how you corrected that. And God, I pray that um, through all things that be said, God, that I would be a mouthpiece, God, um, blessing myself and increasing in you. And God, we pray that this be done in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to, split, we're going to explore the idea of the fall of man. Um, and as I think about this idea of the fall of man, I think about um, something that happened in my own personal life. Roughly about two years ago, me and my father, we decided, um, since I've been here in Jackson, we don't get a chance to spend Father's Day much often. But this, on this particular Father's Day or on this week of Father's Day, I decided that instead of me just calling him, I would instead meet him for lunch early in this week for, because of some reason I couldn't meet him that weekend. So I wanted to let him know that I love him, that I appreciate everything about him. And so we decided to have lunch earlier that week. And so... In, in, in long and short story, we met at a place in Louisville. We had a, we had a fairly good time. It's one of the few times that we really get to, get to sit, um, just me and my dad, and, and kind of shoot the breeze and talk a little bit and be able to um, say, you know, see what's going on in each other's lives. And so what I didn't understand is that although this Father's Day was special in the fact that I was spending it with my dad, it was a Father's Day that would change my life forever. Um, during, this con- during this particular lunch and conversation, me and my father got to share a ver- got to have a very, very intimate conversation where he shared some of the highs and lows of his, of his um, time for, throughout um, parenthood and being a husband. Um, for the, for, even though you may not know my mom and, my mom and dad, they are divorced. But, I, but since me being a young, a young husband, young father, um, my dad, for whatever reason, took it upon himself to kind of let me in on a few things, let me in on a few secrets. In fact, it all started because I asked a simple question, which I didn't know was going to lead to something way bigger. But I asked him a simple question. I said, Dad, um, tell me, Dad, what is, what is the best decision you ever made? And tell me, what do you feel like was the worst mistake you ever made as a parent or as a husband? Well, although I won't share all the details, what happened, what, what ensued was my dad began to be very open about how, about how the, his marriage ended. He began to tell me details, explicit and, and very intimate details about his fall, so to speak. And so I couldn't help but think about that as I read through Genesis chapter 3 today. And as we explore this idea of the fall of man, you know, with, we have this, we, it's, we come to this point in the story where, in Genesis 2, things were all good. There's this creation. God is creating all these great things, and he's, and he's saying that they are good. Well, then he comes to the end of chapter 1 where he creates the crown jewel of his creation, man, and he says that it's very good. In fact, Genesis chapter 2 actually becomes a second account of the creation. So nothing really, nothing really different except for a few details were just added for the specific to be specific about what happened during creation. And so not only does he do that, he, not only does he, cre- he finish creating the heavens and the earth, but then he also lays out the responsibilities of mankind. He tells, he gives Adam job, and then, of course, he gives him um, that, that, that bubbling bride and gift, his wife, right? By the middle of, I mean, by the, towards the end of chapter 2. But then it moves in towards what's called the first marriage. So by the end of chapter 2, things are all good. 
But then as we look, but as we switch over to chapter 3, we see that God, this, um, the scriptures introduced this new character, and this new character has a different M.O., and he wants to introduce something different into the equation of God's story. And, this, and, this, and so what happens is this, the serpent, this person who is who you'll find out later on is um, known as Satan, he decides that he wants to bring something in, into the creation story that would put us into dire straits. And as, you, as we look through the Genesis chapter 3 account, we're going to look at it in, from an idea of a, of a process. We're going to look at elements, a, a part of chapter 3, but then we're going to look at what they led to as a process in chapter 3. Um, essentially, there are three things that come up in chapter 3 that really, really, really speak to the gospel story, that really speak to how, I mean, the, the process of how we fail where we are. And we'll talk about, and as we talk about that, we're going to look, we're going to go ahead and um, look at it. First of all, we're going to start at verse one. We're going to go verse by verse, if you would just bear with me. Um, first of all, as we look at this creation, I mean, we look at the creation story, here comes that new character. Um, in chapter, tri- chapter three, verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty and, I mean, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, um, indeed, has God said, you shall eat from any tree of the garden? So we start off with this person, the serpent, who's in chapter 3, and we look at two things about him. Number one, we find out that he was craftier than any beast of the field. And, I, and also we find out that um, later on, if you look, and if, especially if you cross-reference it with Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, you find out that this is Satan. This is Satan in the, in the, in the form of a serpent here, all right? And so one of the first things you read as you read this first, um, in the first verse of this chapter is you go, Really? A talking serpent. Really? Like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that this serpent starts talking to a human being? You, think, you may think that's absurd, but think about this. Paul, in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 11, verse 3, he alludes to the idea that he believes that this is true. Also, Peter, in, this, in, in some of his writings, as well as John in Revelation, lead to this idea that this, this talking snake, there has to be some mal- I mean, some... Um, there has to be some, um, some, some validity to this talking snake. But then also we see another reference of God using something else to talk in the form of, in, Num- in Numbers chapter 22, where we see Balaam and his donkey and how that, do- that donkey begins to talk. So just in case you think a talking, a talking serpent is crazy, you can refer to that. Um, but look at what the serpent does in verse, and he asks a, a very interesting question to the woman. He says, indeed, God has said, you shall not eat from the tree, shall you not eat from the, any tree of the garden? And notice how he misrepresents God. He actually pictures and, point and paints God in this idea of, did God say you can't eat from anything? He doesn't even, he misleads the woman. He's, he's misrepresenting God and making, making it seem like God was someone who tried to withhold something beneficial from them. And so then the woman, and then the woman answers in verse 2, and she says, from the, tree, from the fruit of the trees we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it, nor touch it, or you will die. And so one of the first elements we see, um, interest, I mean, basically um, integrated into this story is this idea of sin. All right. And so we know that sin, sin is something that God is not pleased with. It's anything, doing anything that is contrary to God and his will and his purpose. But now the woman, in fact, does something that, that was hardly noticeable, but yet it, it, to me it kind of stands out in the story. Notice that if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, look at um, in, verse, 
in verse um, 16, when God commands the man, he tells the man, he says, he said, any tree of the fruit, any tree from the garden, you may eat freely. But from the from the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you will die. Well, Eve quotes that. However, she adds something to it. She adds, you not eat from it or touch it. In fact, she's literally adding to the word of God. Um, as we look in Revelation, it tells, it gives us a warning about adding to the word of God. It tells us that I testify that anyone who hears these words of this prophecy of this book, anyone who adds to them, God will add to him plays which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from this, from the words of this prophecy, God will take away part from the tree of life, from the holy silly, which, which are written in this book. So we see that in the beginning, there begins to be a bit of a deception. Satan from the beginning is trying to lead um, trying to lead the woman to, to go astray. And we see that he kind of, he, in such a way, he gets kind of a loophole. He already questioned, he makes her start to question what God has said and the validity of God, of God's word. Well, next in verse four, there comes a deception in this, in this, and this is still a part of the sin. This is deception. The serpent lied about the consequences of eating the fruit. He says, he says to him, he says, surely you will not die. He lies. He simply lies outright about what would happen. In fact, what he does, in fact, if you, if you, um, if you look at what, the, what God says, God said in that verse, he says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Well, in Hebrew, of course, it actually says, dying, you will surely die. And what this is, is an emphasis. When you see, in the, in the Holy Scriptures, when you see something, especially if you just happen to dabble in Hebrew a little bit, um, you'll see that when God, when this is written, God says, dying, you will surely die. So it's an emphatic saying of, listen, if you do this, this is certain. This is not a maybe, kind of, by technicality, he says, you will die. So we have to be careful of, we have, so you have to be careful as you see that God is giving here, gave Adam and Eve this flat out commandment and told them, listen, if you do this, you will surely die. It was a direct warning. And, and but oh, how we don't listen. And so, even, even still, in verse 5, we see that God knows, God says, for God knows in the day, that, I mean, serp, the serpent says, for God knows that in the day that you die, you will eat from, I mean, you will eat from it, and your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, when we look at this statement, we see that Satan, although he is, although he is, he, although he flat out lies to him in a sense, he's, he also tells a little bit of truth in what he's saying. Because now God did say that, you know, God, I mean, in the, I mean, in the end, in, three, in chapter 3, verse 22, God will allude to the idea that there was something that Satan had right. He may have knew something, but it wasn't totally correct. And so God is basically trying to keep us from opening Pandora's box, which we'll explore a little later. Um, in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Um, in verse 6, it, it, shows this, it gives this idea that um, Eve was deceived. But, but also, even still, you have to remember that although Eve was deceived, Adam acted willfully and deliberately in rebellion against God. All right? So what, what do you think made God, I mean, made Eve want to eat from the tree, or what you think deceived her. Let's look, in verse 6, it tells us, first of all, that the tree was good for food. So there was the lust of the eyes. So she saw that it was good for food. 
I mean, that it was a lot. I mean, I'm sorry, that she thought it was good for food, which is a lust for the flesh. She looks at it and she says it was desire. I mean, it was a delight to the eyes, which means it was the lust of the eyes. Nextly, next, you see that she was, it was desirable to make one wise, which also is the pride of life. And ultimately, what it all culminates in this idea of that she it's this idea of being like God, which is having power or having wisdom or having basically lusting after God's job. And then we switch over and we look at the fact that she takes hold of it and she eats from it. And then she hands it to her husband. And just in case you missed it, verse 6 tells us, it says that she took from the fruit and she ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her. All right. Notice that it wasn't necessarily that he was off. He was off um, watching the game and doing some other stuff. Right. He was somewhere close by. She, he was with her. Don't miss that. He was with her. And so it brings up the idea of what, what could have been one of the failures of man is we could have been, in this, in this case, it could have been that Adam was either docile or compliant, meaning that he stood by and he let it happen. How many times do we as men take our job, take our job not seriously? How many times do we look around and we see things going on in our house and rather than get up and do something about it, we stay at our television we open up a can of beer and try to drink it away. We go out with the boys and we try to figure and we try to find a way to lessen the pain. We find some other we find out some other vehicle. We find some hobby to get into and we forget that our house is falling away. We cannot as men we cannot accept that. We have to take responsibility for what God is doing in our families and our lives. And now here's the thing. If you go back and look at the story, you'll see that there had to have been some type of communication, I mean, I would have, there would have to be an assumption of some type of communication between Adam and Eve concerning this, because this command was first given to Adam in chapter 2. So somehow, some way, it made it to chapter 3, right? And he's standing by. You would think that Adam would be over there like, no, no, hey, 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 who is this? Who are you talking to? Why, what are you doing? But no, it's this idea that she was deceived, and then he willfully, he just went along with this. We have to be men who take charge of our homes. And this is not a, and this is not a, oh, I'm the man and you must do things for me. No, this is a, I am spiritually, I am spiritually responsible for my household. If Adam was a man, Adam should have stepped in and told the, and told the serpent what for and, asked, and get him, got him away. He shouldn't have stood by and watched his wife fall into deception. We have to be men who are active in our families, active in, the relation, in our relationship of our wives and our children so that we can be able to protect them from the wiles and the, and the tricks of the devil. Amen? And so, and so Adam stood by. He stood by. He was docile, and, he, and, and, and something went terribly wrong. And this is where the story takes, takes a turn. In verse 7, it says that, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loin coverings. So now sin, this is the introduction of sin into the world. Adam and Eve ate from this, ate from the fruit of the tree, and now their eyes were opened. And so now with this, with this, um, with this, with this opening of their eyes comes a new reality. It comes, comes a new, a new um, set of side effects, if you will. And from verses um, 7 through 10, we're going to talk about what those side effects are. Look at verse 7. Once again, it says that their eyes were open and they knew they were both naked and they sewed fig leaves together. The first thing that they experienced in the garden after their sin was shame. 
in verse 7, it was as, yeah, think about it, it was as if man had some type of veil over his eyes to protect him from the reality of outside God. But then all of a sudden they ate from the tree and they knew something different. But now, once we, once we all sin, what do we do? We become ashamed. We become ashamed. And that, and that happened to Adam and Eve as they decided to sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves once they realized they were naked. But, but the problem is, is that they tried to make coverings for themselves, but they weren't sufficient enough. They weren't sufficient. And we're going to find out later on that God is going to clothe them in a different way because he'll have a more sufficient covering for them. Um, in fact, it's this idea that they tried to use works works to cover their sin. It's this idea that he used works to cover their sin. How often do we think to ourselves that when we make a mistake, if we maybe if maybe if we pray a little harder, if we do a little bit more, if we go to churches a little bit more, if we do just a few more good deeds that maybe somehow somehow way it'll outweigh the bad in our lives. When in reality we're still the same people. We still have the same problems and we're not getting any better. They tried to cover up their shame they tried to cover up their shame and hide themselves in a way that, God, that they think that God wouldn't find out. But later we find out that God does find out and that he has to give them a new covering for in a new way. Um, in, verse, in verse 8, normally do we see shame, but we also see fear. There came a time of reckoning. Um, it reminds me of a story, in fact, in the last couple of weeks, um, as I was, I, um, I have the pleasure, um, very many nights, to be able to put my daughter to bed. And so that entails me having to um, give her a bath and then um, allow her to brush her teeth with me helping and then putting her to bed, I mean, reading a story and putting her to bed. Well, on this particular night, um, I always take her out the tub and dry off and then I put her on the, and then I give her, she has a little stool in our bathroom where she gets to brush her teeth. Well, this particular time, she usually takes time to brush her teeth because my daughter's a little selfish sometimes. She kind of, she just kind of wants to do all things on her own, and so we let her to a certain extent, and then we come back and correct her. But, um, but yeah, so she takes this time to brush her teeth. And so I walk out of the bathroom just to go and, go, just to go and do something um, else that I had to do. Well, suddenly, as I'm, as I'm, in, as I'm out of the bathroom, um, I'm hearing something clinking in the bathroom. Usually when I give her a bath, I take off the jewelry off my, I mean, off my hand and my arms, and I put, it by the, um, I put it on the sink side. Well, my daughter decided that tonight was the night that she would play with Daddy's wedding ring. And so as she's playing with it, now, unbeknownst to me, right, she's, she's playing with it in the bathroom by herself, and all of a sudden I hear this clink, 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 clink. And so if, if any of you have ever had that feeling when you know that something's about to go wrong when you hear that clink, clink, clink when you're around a sink, that's, every, that's the time you panic, right? Because you know that some jewelry is about to go down your drain and you're going to have to fish it out, right? But somehow, as I hear the clink, clink, and I run back in the bathroom because I know it's coming down the drain, apparently she somehow catches it, right? And so by the time I run back in, as she catches it, puts it down, and she continues to brush her teeth and nothing had ever happened. And so when I come in, she can, when I come in the door, she can see me in the mirror, and I'm like, what happened? And she turns around like, I don't know what's going on. Daddy, I love you, Daddy, you know? And so it's this idea that she knew she had made a mistake in touching something of Dad's and that it almost ended in terror, right? But what she tried to do was cover it up, which is the same thing we try to do, don't we? When we know things are going wrong and we see we made a mistake, what do we do, Right? We go out and try to cover it up. I also remember this time where, when I was young, me and my brother were playing in the front room of my mother's house. She had a vase on the table that was, I don't think it was that expensive, but it meant a lot to my mom. But basically, we were wrestling. We basically were playing WrestleMania. We knocked it over, and it fell, and it chipped. 
And so, you know, as a kid, you're panicking, right? You're, <laughs> you're going, we, we went to finding glue. We're trying to stick it back on. We're trying to cover it up. But the vase was just never the same. In fact, it was such a, we thought we had fixed it. And my mom came back in and said, and she just literally looked at it and went, who broke my vase? I was like, how does she know that, right? And, it's, and, that, and that's the feeling that Adam and Eve had. They had this feeling of we think we know. We think we've got this thing covered up. and We think we got this thing figured out. And we don't. And so God comes in in verse 8, and what it does is it instills fear in us. In verse, I mean, in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves among the pre- from the presence of the Lord among the garden. And so with that being said, we're like a child who's done something wrong. And we know that when daddy comes home, we're in trouble. There's this fear that we experience after we commit sin. There's this, first of all, there's this shame, and then next is there's this fear that, you know, what will God do to me for doing this? How will, you know, how will it affect the rest of my relationship? What can I do to fix this, or can I fix this at all? And so then it comes to the point, not only do we experience shame and fear, but we also experience a lack of presence. Look at verse, look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord God called a man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? When man hid from God, God asked a very valid question when it came to confronting their sin. He says, where are you? Especially for men today, where are you? Where are you? Are you at home with your family, not taking responsibility for what's going on? Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're not doing anything in daily operations of your home. Maybe you're out with friends. Maybe you're doing stuff while while your wife is holding down the fort. Maybe you're out serving everyone else except for your family. Where are you? Or maybe you're single. Maybe you're a single man, and rather than helping other people preserve their home, you're out destroying someone else's home. Where are you? The first thing that God calls us into question about is our lack of presence. God goes into the garden. He sees that he can't find the man who he's left responsible to tend for the garden itself, and he can't find the person who's supposed to be tending the garden. Where are you? Where are you? And then on top of that, it moves into the point where in verse 11 he says, and where the man says, once again, he perpetuates that fear and that shame. He says, and he said, um, I mean, in verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid and I, because I was naked. And so I hid myself. God answers him and says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Have you eaten from the tree that which I've commanded you not to eat? And then in verse 12, the excuses begin. So one of the four, other four things is that, number one, we experience shame. Number two, we experience fear. Number three, we experience a lack of presence. Number four, we start giving excuses. Look at verse 12. He says, the man said, and, and watch how this goes. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree. And I ate, right? So it's almost like, uh, it's really that fault. It's really your fault. And you did this, and I went along too, right? It's a sense of, he makes sure that he hears it in big boldness, right? It was she 
which you gave me, right? So in, in, a, in a sense, he's basically victimizing himself and he's blaming his wife and God, above all people, for his failure to, his failure to know what he was doing, right? He says, hey, listen, you hadn't, if you hadn't gave me that wife, would have had no problems, right? Hey, you should, you should control her, right? No, right? So he just kind of goes off and makes excuses, right? But once again, verse 6, he was there. We make excuses, but it's our responsibilities, God, when God saw our sin, he looked at us first because we were there. And of course, later on, we're going to find out that he's going to, he's going to give the man a reality check. He's going to help them see, you know, who is really at fault here. But until then, he basically tell, he, he's basically let, he's, and we, we basically need to know this is that the man was there. He needed to take, he needed to take responsibility for his actions. And he didn't. In fact, he passed the book on everybody but himself. Man, if there, if there is nothing else you get from this sermon, man, let us not pass the buck when it comes to having our responsibilities, all right? Listen, things can be going bad. Things can be going down the crapper. Anything could be happening in your home, but guess what? It is your responsibility as the man, all right? Listen, there are a lot of things that go on in a lot of our lives, and we all have things that are going on, but the reality of it is is that God has called us to be the leaders of the home, Amen? And God is not, and, and not going to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a pass because your wife, she's pretty strong there. No, no. He's going to say, listen, that was your responsibility. You should have done that. It was your, cho- it was your responsibility to lead you, you and your family. You should do that. So, so don't forget that excuses sometimes cr- um, creep up in our, creep up in our, um, in our language, in our, in our um, understanding and faults of what our sins are like. And if you want to hear some good sermons on, on victimization, um, we encourage you to go back and listen to some of Brother Jeff's um, sermons in the last couple of weeks that talked about the victim, or a series actually, about, about the victim. So it, they were really fruitful and they're really, um, and they're really productive for you to listen to. Um, in verse, and so note, I want you to note this, that as, as, um, as we come to the end of verse 12, we notice that God asks where the man is. But now here's the thing. God realizes that his people have fallen. And once he realizes his, men, his people were fallen, that his men were lost, God goes and searches after them. God initiates the search party, all right? God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the one who searches and comes, seeks after us first. We don't seek him out first. He seeks us out. And we notice that God in his grace and his love and his mercy, not when the, at the moment that we sin, he comes and he says, where are you? He basically calls us into account and says, where are you? Right? It's him showing his love towards us and taking the initiative towards salvation um, and demonstrating our love to lead us to salvation. Now, looking at verse 13, it says this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now it's a tag. So now it's kind of a tag of excuse now, right? The man starts and said, tag, it's the woman. And the woman says, oh, no, 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 tag, it's the serpent, right? And so now God is getting ready to hand out, um, is basically getting ready to hand out judgment, all right? So if you haven't missed, if you haven't gotten my first point yet, the first, my first point of my sermon in Genesis 3, 3 is sin. The second part we see in this process, I mean, the elements of this process in Genesis 3 is judgment. All right. So in judgment, we're going to look at verses 14, 14 through 19. And as we know, with all sin come consequences. And in this case, Adam and Eve disobedience came with judgment. Look at verse 14. It says, 
the Lord God said to the serpent, because of this, cursed are you more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On, the, on your belly you will go, and thus you will eat all the days of your life. Now, in the first half of this curse, God is directly cursing the serpent, which was used for Satan's deception. So he basically says, listen, you know what? You're going to be on your belly all your life. You're going to eat dust for the rest of your life. All right? Well, then he goes on, and then he becomes more specific. He turns his attention to what's inhabiting the serpent, i.e. Satan. Verse 15 says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him at his heel. Now, verse 15 is what is known as basically the first gospel. It's the first allusion to this idea that something special is going to be happening. And notice how he says it. He says, he says first of all, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Um, basically meaning you guys are going to be at strife. You guys are going to be at odds for a long time. And then he says, even between your seed and her seed. But, now, but, then, he may, but then this is prophecy, basically. He says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what this is is, an, uh, is, is what this is, is alluding to this idea that ultimately, he's alluding to Satan's ultimate, ultimate defeat. He says that he, he's basically, basically making a first statement about the one who is to come to save us, to save us um, from, the sin, from our sins, which is Jesus. And so he says, listen, you will bruise, you will bruise his heel, right? Meaning that, yeah, you will, you will make something significant. You will bite. It will hurt, right? It will sting, just like death stings, right? But ultimately, he will bruise your head, right? Which is significant for a snake, because if you bruise their head, they what? They die, right? I saw a picture of, on Facebook today of somebody who killed a snake, and I just thought to myself more and more about that sermon. I, was it, I think that was you, Ledger, was it? Okay, good. Ledger is the, um, the, out, the outdoorsman of our church, so he's, a, he's our... Um, He's our um, Steve Irwin. So, but anyway, um, so yeah, so you see that God is God begins to hand out this punishment, and He lets the serpent know first. And notice that the serpent's um, the, ser- the serpent's curse was basically first of all He degraded him, next He disgraced him, and then He was letting him know about his his um his defeat. All right, so He basically tells him, "Listen, you think you got it? You think you you think you got this thing all pegged out? Guess what?" This is not going to end well for you. I promise you, it's not going to end well. And so then next, after he deals with the serpent and gives out his curse, then he moves his attention to the woman, right? Then he says her curse became an internal, physical, and emotional punishment. First of all, he says in verse 15, I mean, in verse 16, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. So there's two things that stick out in this. Number one, we talk about pain in childbirth, all right? Um, and we think that, and that, that has to be significant for um, a multitude of reasons, but I'm sure, ladies, you wish that Eve had not done that so you wouldn't have to experience that. Um, but number two, one of the more significant things is the fact that he brings up, he brings up this, um, um, this statement of, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what this, what this alludes to is a struggle, a struggle, if you will, with male leadership, all right? And so, ladies, let me take a moment, and let me say something about this. 
Ladies, there may be times where you may know something more than your husband. There may be some times when you may be more efficient. There may be some times when you may be even more equipped in certain ways, but you must submit to leadership. Ooh, got quiet on that one. (laughs) Well, let me give you some explanation about that. Number one, the president of the United States has a vice president. He has chiefs of staff. He has all these people who he pulls in with him to him to help him make decisions on a daily basis. There may be even times when the chief of staff is probably more responsible for making a decision about something that happens in our nation than the president himself. Now, although he's smart enough, although he's gifted, and although he's taking a large hint of the solution for that, he still has to answer to the president, all right? And just in case that's too much, let's talk about our jobs. There may be a time where on your job, your boss or your manager may make you responsible for a specific task that he's tasked to do. You may be well-equipped. You may be smart enough. You may have everything in the world to make that, to, I mean, to make that thing happen. And that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you should have his job right then. It simply, it simply means that even in the midst of our doing, our, doing things that may, that may bring us, I mean, that may um, be of significance and importance, we still have to give, we still have to give presidents I mean, presidents and respect to the people who lead us, right? So we shouldn't be, we, so it's this idea that we, you, should, we should, you should submit to leadership and we should, we should be, um, I should say, respectful. We should be respectful and love our wives. This is not a, I am your husband and listen, go fix me something. You know, it's not that, all right? This is a, listen, this is a, I want to respect you and what you do, all right? This is, not one of the, this is not a chauvinistic sermon for those of you who are getting ready to walk out the door, okay? This is not a chauvinistic sermon. This is a statement of biblical, of biblical principle, okay? And if you have a problem with this, then you have a problem with God's standard and God's form, and you shouldn't be in marriage. Um, next, he looks at, in verse 17, then he comes to the person who, with whom he imputes, imputes the sin to, the man. And so the man is probably sitting back like, he, can you imagine the man standing in the garden? He's like, yeah, get him, God. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm, see, serpent? Yep. Got you. Next time you'll know, right? This looks at the woman. See? Mm-hmm. See? Should have been. I told you. See? You're always, doing, you're always speaking out of turn and all this kind of... You can just see him over there looking like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. But then God looks and says, now, Adam. And he's like, uh-oh. Something's wrong. All right? So now he's turning his attention to the man and, and giving him the curse. In verse 17, then he says, and Adam said, because you have listened... To the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree um, um, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, right? So first of all, you need to realize in verse 17, he says, listen, because you didn't lead your family, this is why you're getting cursed. So now, whose fault is it? It's Adam's fault. Adam was supposed to be there leading his family. He dropped the ball, and because he dropped the ball, God is letting him know that, listen, you need to, you're going to take responsibility for this too. And so he looks at verse seven, in, after verse 17 and verse 8, I mean, in verse 17, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so Adam's curse is, a phys- is an external physical punishment. He is going to have to toil with the earth. And now I want you to understand that work is not the curse. Okay, I want everybody to get that. Work is not the curse. It's the frustration 
the toil, the sorrow, everything else that comes with the work. Because work can be a blessing, all right? Work can definitely, is definitely a blessing. But it's the sorrow, the frustration of, oh, I got to go to work to make the paycheck. Oh, I'm not making enough because we need to pay for this. You know, that's the frustration. That's the toil of the ground, right? It's this idea that you're working hard, you're sweating, right? You know, think about that. Up until this point, Adam hasn't had to work that hard, has he? Right? It's, um, got stripes, uh, zebra, yeah, you know, got a mane, um, tiger, yeah, right? He's just kind of, you know, it's kind of like having a, huh? It's just kind of like him having a, um, a pretty well, a pretty well-off job, and not having to do much to get to get paid pretty awesomely, right? But now it's turned to a point where now, whereas in, in the Garden of Eden you had this ground that just grew stuff, right? It just, you know, man, I'm sure I'm hungry for an orange. Oh, look, here it is, right? You know, now it's this point of, man, I want me some um, potatoes and stuff, and I need to really, I'm hungry. Now it's like, oh man, I gotta go out here and, wow, man. It's raining. We can't. We're losing crops. You know, it's that toil, that frustration, that anger with realizing that you have to toil for what God had given you, and God had just blessed him with that at first. God had blessed him in the sense of, listen, when he when he when he just showed up, it just worked, and now he's at the point where he, when he just shows up and he has to work for it. He has to sweat. He has to hear. When are you coming home? He has to hear. That's not enough money. He has to hear. What are we going to do? He has to hear everything under the sun. And he has to toil in frustration all because he didn't, he took for granted the blessing of God and the obedience of God. And so now he, we move to this point where not only that, not only does he have to experience the toil of the ground, he has to, um, number, number um, in verse, we're going to skip down to verse 19, he says, um, then he says, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to ground, because you were taken from the, for, I mean, you, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So not only does God curse him with this frustration or toil and sorrow in work, but then he finds out an, another part of punishment, death. And this is where it really stings, right? Man, he comes to the point where, I bet, he's, I bet as he was thinking about this, I bet he didn't realize that. I bet he probably said to himself, but it's just fruit. It's nothing. God, it's just fruit. She just ate one piece. What harm could one piece do, right? And that's how we do with our sin, don't we? That's how we do, right? Just, just one little mishap. Who will know? It won't affect anybody. Nobody, it doesn't really matter. And the reality is, every bit of our piety, every single moment, every action we do, it's important to God Almighty. He wants to see us flourish and thrive in every single area of life. And I don't don't mean that in a your best life now way. I mean that in a God wants to see us live out his will and purpose way. And so we come to this point where he sees, where, where he's having to experience death and separation from life on earth. But if only that was the end of the story. If only that was the end of the story. Because thankfully God doesn't just leave us in shipwreck lives. Thankfully God doesn't just allow us to sin and just punish us. Right? Along with sin and how we commit sin from eating from the tree in Genesis chapter 3, Along with the punishment that God hands out, 
in chapter 3, there's also grace. As we, and let's explore this idea of grace in the last four verses of, um, in, in the last four verses of Genesis chapter 3 here. It says this, it says in verse 20, it says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, interesting that when Adam names Eve, they didn't have any children yet. So it's essentially an act of faith that he, that he names Eve, um, basically the mother of all the living. Um, and now the grace in that is that God allowed man to basically have children even after sin entered the world. Amen? Verse 21, we see that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God recognized in verse 22, I'm sorry, in verse 21, God um, recognizes that these men and women, the men and women, have basically tried to find a way to cover their own sin by creating loin, I mean, by creating, um, using fig leaves to um, create loin coverings. And so essentially what they do is they're trying to use good, their own works to cover their sin. But God looks at it and he deems it and he says, that's not good enough. This is not a sufficient covering. And so what God does is he provides a covering. It says in 21 that he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. So now here's, so God could have, so, so God provides covering through the death or sacrifice of an animal, right? And it was kind of a picture, kind of a picture of the Lamb of God who would die to cover us, to cover our sin. So you see a lot of, so you see a, lot of a parallel between the gospel, and the, the, the gospel and Genesis chapter 3. But then also it's a picture of the robes of righteousness that will be provided for guilty sinners, right? You see this idea that God, remember when we, you know, when we get to heaven, what God is going to, I mean, what Jesus is providing for us is his righteousness. And so what that means is that when you go to heaven, you're not going to heaven on your own merit. You're not going to heaven because you've been great. You're not going to heaven because you've saved, you, you know, you professed the gospel to a thousand people. You're going to heaven because you accepted Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is taking our righteousness, which is nothing, just in case you missed that, it's nothing, and he trades that. He says, listen, you give me your righteousness, I'll take that. I'll give you, I mean, I'm sorry, I'll give me your sin, I'll take your sin. Here, you take my righteousness, all right? And so when God sees us, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see us. So the fact that God clothed, provides a, a sufficient covering for Adam and Eve is this idea that, yes, you are guilty. Yes, you have fallen short. Yes, you've made a mistake. But I, God, will cover you. I will cover you in my righteousness. I will cover you with what I deem to be fit to, and, and save you. All right? So, and so with that being, I mean, so with that being said, he could have, and you go, what is the grace in that? God could have put them to death right then and there if he wanted to. Instead, he doesn't, he doesn't put them to death. He could have even dealt with them even more harshly. Instead, what does he do? He shows them grace. He gives them a covering. And then we move on to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and, and eat and live forever. 
God recognized, because remember, back in the early verses of Genesis chapter 3, Satan alludes to something, right? He said, listen, for God knows that if you eat from this, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, the serpent wasn't exactly wrong about that part. Because even God makes the admission. He says, then God said, behold, man's become like one of us, knowing good from evil. And now might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat eat and live forever. So now, here's the thing. God, they learned, although they did, I mean, although man recognized good and evil, they recognized good and evil in a way that God never intended for them to recognize it. They learned it the hard way. And that, and so man, and, and so man made a grave mistake in eating from the tree and it, was, and it caused a problem that God foresaw. He says, and he says, that he's, he was worried that they may stretch out, take from the tree of life and eat, and eat it and live forever. And so the question becomes, why was God so worried about that? Why was God so worried about that? Well, here's the answer to why God was so worried about that. God saw that when they ate from the tree, of course, what happened? Sin entered the world, right? Now imagine if these sin-sick people had gotten a hold of the tree of life. What would have happened? They would have lived forever with what? Sin. They would have lived forever with sin in them. And so God realized that he had to protect them from themselves, that he had to protect them from even, even more grave danger. So then in verse 23, he institutes this. He says, therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which he was ta- from which he was taken. So you look at it and you, and you say to yourself, man, God is being really, really harsh. He's kicking them out of, the, out of Eden, this place where they had all this beautiful and bountiful blessings, and he sent them out on his own. But don't miss the grace in that. God put them out of the garden, and then he, dro- he drove man out, and then he, and at the east of the garden, he stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword, which returned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God was keeping them from making themselves more sicker forever. He was keeping them, he was protecting them from themselves, and the grace in that is this. God wanted to pre- pre- prevent man from living with their curse forever. And so now we come to a point where we have to realize that God was working, was working to be gracious to us, to keep us from, fall, from falling into deeper temptation and, and even affecting more and more generations. But now it also brings up another point. Adam and Eve were in Eden. They were in Eden. You would think that Eden is the, the, the ideal environment to protect a person from sin, but it wasn't. That just begs of something. Think about that. The ideal environment of Eden did not prevent the entrance of sin. Think about that. The favorable environment is not the answer to man's problems. Is it helpful? Yes, very helpful. But ultimately, what we have to work on is our heart problems. Because we can, we can make a Christian oasis, we can say everything is Christian, but the reality of it is, is that if a little bit of sin gets trapped in the oasis, it's going to affect the rest of the people in the oasis. So let us not be deceived with the idea that an ideal Christian, I mean an ideal environment 
will simply contain and keep the entrance from keep sin out of where you are because sin so easily can beset us where we are no matter where we are and with all this being said here I'm, now I'm coming to the end God allows man to thrive even after the fall and he can do the same for you everyone please stand just like Adam we sinned and we may be ashamed of our sin in the scope of our in the scope even of that um, in the scope of our sin even after what we've done just like Adam you may be receiving judgment for your actions and you may and you may feel that there is no hope but just like Adam just like Adam you can be covered by the grace and mercy of a living God Romans all you have to do is accept God's um, no I mean accept Christ to know God's grace let me read a verse to you in Romans chapter 5 verses verse 5 19 it says this for as though as through one man I mean as I mean for as through one man's disobedience many were made sinners even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous and what that says is this you may be sitting you may be you may be you're on the side of Adam and Adam fell short of the glory of God Adam sinned but now even though Adam experienced judgment and you may be sitting here right now you may be feeling that maybe God maybe you're experiencing some type of judgment for what you've done but remember even in that sin even in that judgment God gave Adam and Eve grace he didn't kill them he provided coverings for them. He allowed them the grace to live on and have children. God can be gracious to you, but to understand and to really know what God's grace is like, you have to know who Jesus is. He is your savior. He is my savior. He is the savior of the whole world. He is the one who dies on our behalf for our sins. He gives us righteousness that we cannot earn, our own, earn on our own. And because of his sacrifice, because of what he's done on the cross, because of the life he lived, we get to experience eternal life. We get to eat from the tree of life. And we get to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus, forever. If you don't know who Jesus is, we're asking you to please come, come forward. We're going to ask that um, councils please move down. We're going to ask that if there is anyone who, first of all, doesn't know who Jesus is and would like to know who Jesus is, we ask you to come forth. Secondly, if you feel right now that maybe there's some sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, that God has been pressing on your heart to get right, or you feel like maybe that something is going on within you that you can't explain and you want prayer, I'm asking you to come down and, and please pray with one of us or take time to come to the altar kneel and pray, and pray by yourself to the Lord. But please don't leave this place not knowing who you are, how much God loves you, and that even through all of our sins, all through all the judgment that may be upon us, God still loves us and he still gives us grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this day. And God, I thank you, for God, for the chance to be able to stand before your people and proclaim your word. God, I pray that, um, that, that we see the fall of man, God, as not just a, 
uh, just not as a bad news, God, but a good news. A good news, God, that you still can cover us, God, if, we, if only we um, accept your Lord, um, accept your son, Jesus. God, we pray, God, that there's anyone, God, who doesn't know who you are. God, that they would come to know you right now, God. And God, we also pray, God, that there's anyone, God, who needs to experience your grace and your mercy and needs to know of your goodness, God. We pray they would come forth and, and, and fall before you, God, and, and God, just say, listen, God, I, I, I'm a sinner, God, and I need to be saved, God. I know that I can't save myself, but I know that some, I know that you can. I know that Jesus can, God. And so, God, we pray that, that God, that, our, that God, that um, Adam's fall be a reminder of who we, not only who we are, but God, also be a reminder of how loving and merciful and gracious you are to us. Because you do love us, and you sent your son to die for us, and we're so ever, ever thankful for that. In Jesus' name.